I think the first lesson we all learned, and we talked about it as a group afterwards, is people cannot wait to see movies on the big screen again. The audience, Daniel, was amazing. We received countless individual donations during both openings. We had patrons bring our staff donuts and food. and uh, There's just such a desire for people to get back to the cinema. This is the Box Office Podcast. I am Daniel Luria, the editorial director of Box Office Pro, the only publication in North America exclusively dedicated to covering the movie theater business, joined once again by our co-host, Rebecca Pauly, deputy editor of Box Office Pro. We've got a great episode for you lined up today. We are launching a new feature in the podcast beginning this week, Indie Focus, which is going to be a new monthly segment with our partners at Spotlight Cinema Networks, where we highlight stories of perseverance in the exhibition community during the COVID-19 pandemic. Our guest this week is going to be Chris Hamill, the president of the Gateway Film Center in Columbus, Ohio, who will be joining us shortly to discuss how the Gateway tackled the pandemic and how they're ready to recover after a very difficult year. But before we get started, Rebecca, a lot of news uh, that happened last week at the box office, a new movie coming out from a major studio. Can you run us down what happened at the top of the domestic market? It was uh, the battle of the horror sequels over the weekend. Uh, We have the third movie in the Conjuring franchise, or should I say the main franchise? There are spinoffs. But uh, Conjuring, The Devil Made Me Do It was a new release. And then you have the second week of A Quiet Place Part 2. Now, our chief analyst, Sean Robbins, expected that Quiet Place Part 2 would be able to stay on top of the box office for the second week. That did not turn out to be the case. The Conjuring, The Devil Made Me Do It, uh, did exceed expectations to earn $24 million over the weekend from a little over 3,100 screens. Uh, this despite the fact that, as it's a Warner Brothers release, it did come out day and date on HBO Max, where it will be for the next month. Uh, something that, that kind of caught my eye that I was interested about with this film is that uh, It had a kind of mediocre critical response and a mediocre audience response. You know, B-plus on CinemaScore, that's, you know, people who saw it weren't particularly excited. The word of mouth isn't particularly good. But I'll really be interested to see how much of an impact that has on its second weekend drop, because I, I think... We don't really have enough of uh, instances of this happening to note that it's a pattern, but with Spiral, the book of Saw, it was a similar situation where the critical and audience reception was meh, but the second weekend hold was pretty good. So I'm wondering if we are seeing a situation where the pent-up demand kind of is so high that we're still at a point where people will just kind of go see anything. They want to see a horror movie, they'll go see... The Conjuring Part 3, even though it's not supposed to be all that great. But regardless, um, it did come in above the last entry in the Conjuring franchise, Annabelle Comes Home, which opened to $20.2 million in 2019. It did eventually top out at $74 million domestic, but again, it didn't go day and date. So, um, you know, as we've said before on, on the podcast, Daniel, it's really hard um, to predict what the performance is going to be given the completely unusual circumstances that we're in right now. But, you know, even so, given the fact that A Quiet Place Part 2 only had that first week at the top, 
pretty darn good first week and it had a pretty uh, pretty darn good second week as well. Uh, 19.2 million from about 3,700 theaters, 59% drop. Um, at this point in its release, the first film, A Quiet Place uh, Part One, had 100 million domestic, and the second one is at 88 million domestic. So again, hard to say where this would have been without uh, a pandemic, but I, I'm, I'm going to tend to believe that's pretty good. We're not that far off. If we look at the same point of release for A Quiet Place Part Two, we're 12% back. You know, the, the original had made $100 million after its first two weekends. The sequel, yes, coming off of a holiday weekend opening, but also coming off a global pandemic, $88 million against $100 million. I, I think these are numbers that, that are acceptable. I, I do think that 59% drop was probably more uh, than I personally expected uh, for it to suffer. Uh, but you know what? If you look at these top two titles in the market, uh, it it tells you something about new titles coming in and new titles doing well week by week, right? I, I think as we've discussed in the past, we're not going to have new studio releases every weekend throughout the summer. We'll be lucky when we have frames like this one where we have a high-profile title followed by another new high-profile title, and we saw the, the impact of it, right? Even if it's not a movie that has a critical consensus behind it or the cinema score from audiences behind it, that word of mouth power, it has something that A Quiet Place Part 2 doesn't have in its sophomore frame in that it's a new release. It's new and if and if you had a good time at, at a theater last weekend and you want to come back, you're probably not going to see the same movie again. Here's a new release uh, to go back in. I would look at this positively, even though that uh, sophomore drop for A Quiet Place Part 2 is a little bit bigger than, than I think a lot of us ex- expected it to do. You know, it's interesting kind of looking at this last weekend as a snapshot, Daniel, of some of the things that we've been talking about over the past year in this podcast. Uh, you look at the top two films, uh, The Conjuring 3 and A Quiet Place 2, they're both horror films. You look at three, four, and five, both a very powerful genre during the pandemic and the post-pandemic recovery era. We have three family titles making up the rest of that top five. Daniel, uh, what are we looking at there? So Corella coming in in its sophomore frame with $11 million from nearly 4,000 theaters, leading to a $43.4 million total uh, for that title. That's uh, a hefty theater count for $11 million. <laughs> That's a hefty theater count. Again, that drop, when you compare it to what happened with A Quiet Place Part Two, wasn't as steep. Uh, we're looking at a drop of $48.8 million uh, for Corella in its second weekend. Which tells us that, hey, the family titles are showing some consistency at the box office. I know it's something that, that you that you mention a lot here, uh, Rebecca, that we've seen these titles have a little bit more legs when it comes to audiences coming back from the pandemic. And I think the best example of that is a title that came in in fourth place, a title that I had never heard of. It's something called Untamed. It's from Universal. The only thing I know about it is that there's a pony on the poster. And I think that's more than enough to to get it in the top five. 
it's really an interesting case with this movie, and and I think maybe we're a little bit out of the loop and, and haven't heard about it because uh, we don't have kids. But this was kind of, if you go back into the DNA of this movie, in 2002, there was a movie called Spirit, Stallion of the Cimarron, which I believe was kind of like a, a seminal movie for for young women. Who, you know, you have a lot of you have a lot of girls going through a horse girl phase, or you're obsessed with horses. I think this was a really a critical movie for a lot of that demographic who were growing up in 2002. That became a Netflix TV show, which in turn then became a movie. So it's a little bit six degrees of Kevin Bacon. But yeah, it's, it's interesting. It goes movie, Netflix series, movie again. And, and as we're seeing, a movie that did surprisingly well, given the fact that it doesn't have the high profile of some of these other family releases. And it really didn't come in with that marketing spend that we saw from from other new release family titles that have come out in recent months. But as we've mentioned in the podcast before, that ecosystem of streaming, feeding theatrical, and helping add a, a spotlight or really emphasize some titles, some IPs, we're seeing that with his number four title in the market, Untamed, which opened to $6.1 million from 3,211 theaters. And then to close off the top five, we had Raya and the Last Dragon from Disney holding on with 1.2 million from a little bit over 1,500 theaters to reach a 53.5 million total here in North America. So a fairly straightforward top five this weekend, Rebecca, like you mentioned, uh, top two with horror sequels and the three directly below them being family titles. We're getting some consistency. Of course, these might not be pre-pandemic figures, but looking at the numbers, I think there are a lot of promising signs as we approach the next big benchmark in the market at the end of June with the release of F9. Well, you can count me excited for this weekend with the release of Peter Rabbit 2, The Runaway, which given what we've been saying about family titles, we've already seen the movie do well in the UK. Um, you know, that's something that we'll analyze on the next episode, but definitely it's, it's one to keep an eye on. And really, it's just so refreshing, Rebecca, to be able to look back at the last year and change and be able to tell the stories of cinemas that have been able to tackle the challenges of the pandemic, reopen, and get to program some of these titles, which leads us into our feature segment, which is brought to you by Spotlight Cinema Networks, the only cinema advertising company dedicated to serving the needs of art house, luxury, and dine-in exhibitors for cinema advertising, pre-show entertainment, event cinema, and digital display distribution. Spotlight offers unique revenue-generating advertising programs tailored to an upscale and influential cinema audience. In collaboration with Box Office Pro, Spotlight Cinema Networks is proud to present Indie Focus, a monthly interview series profiling industry thought leaders, iconic art houses, and executives from the country's leading luxury cinema circuits. To find out more about Spotlight Cinema Networks, visit spotlightcinemanetworks.com. And with that, Rebecca, uh, I think we've got a really great conversation with Chris Hamill, the president of the Gateway Film Center in Columbus, Ohio. Chris, thank you so much for joining us today. The best place to start before we dive uh, right into it is if you could tell us a little bit about the Gateway Film Center. Um, obviously, you guys are in Columbus, Ohio, but what's the film scene like over there and what role does your cinema play in that community? 
Well, first, thanks for having me. It's great to be here. Film Center is the real epitome of unique. We sometimes feel like an art house. We sometimes feel like a art center. Sometimes it appears to be a somewhat commercial venue, but I don't think there's anything really like it in the country. It was originally developed by the city and uh, Ohio State University to sort of drive economic development in a part of the city that was being revitalized. Uh, it was originally operated by the Drexel Theater Group, which was a small uh, local chain that was here at the time in Columbus. And then Landmark Theaters operated the venue for a few years as well. Uh, I was actually uh, retained as a consultant in 2009 to sort of figure out why it wasn't working the way that the developers had hoped it would. And um, you know what we landed on at that time was we had to really become a integral part of the arts community in Columbus to uh, to survive and, and to reach those goals. So the Film Center is really focused on artists and filmmakers. We don't exclusively play independent film. We don't exclusively play commercial film. We don't exclusively play local films. We, we try to curate a mix of the best of all three. And, uh, you know, I really think we've done a, a pretty good job in, in building trust locally and in the region. And, uh, uh, people believe in curation here. So the thing that some people may not know that are listening is that Columbus is really a great arts city and the uh, film center is a part of that arts community. What are some of the ways that you've worked with that local community over the years, um, both prior to and during COVID to really establish that relationship and to help the art scene in, in Columbus really thrive? Well, I think the first thing we had to do, Rebecca, was uh, like make friends with everybody. <laughs> That's the so, important part. <laughs> they have to, they yeah, have to we, like you. That helps, right? <laughs> I think it's fair to say that the uh, legacy arts leaders in the city were a little skeptical of us. They, uh, you know, if they thought of us as just a traditional movie theater, a lot of people think of movies in the U.S. as a commodity, right? It's like get a whole bunch of people in, sell them concessions, move them on. And uh, so we spent the first few years really trying to explain to the other arts leaders in the city that that wasn't really our model. We really cared about the artists who were making the films. We didn't only care about the local filmmaker who maxed out their credit card uh, making a you know $2,000 film. We also cared about these productions that employed hundreds, sometimes thousands of the most gifted filmmakers in the world. And um, in time, I, I think we were able to earn their trust and, and build really meaningful partnerships, you know, trying to understand what their audiences wanted and what their missions were, and then uh, matching them with ours. Second half of your question is COVID. I mean, I don't know anybody in our fields who was prepared for the challenges of the pandemic. And, uh, but we, we still found ways to form meaningful partnerships. We worked with the museum on presenting some films about artists. You know, we did talks, not unlike your podcast. And uh, I think we found ways to, you know, maintain and, and possibly even be innovative, maintain those partnerships and possibly even find new ways to innovate during the pandemic and afterwards. You mentioned, I mean, the Gateway's role as not just a movie theater, but an art center. What are some of those other uh, initiatives that you've done either in person or, or virtually during the pandemic, other than just being a site for screening movies? Well, you know, sometimes our role is as the host, you know, sometimes we're the venue. So you know, if there's a film festival or uh, another organization that wants to host a screening, Film Center is a great place to do it. And so when we're the host, we take the responsibility seriously of sort of passing the microphone, right? Letting them tell their story and, and be front and center. Other times our role is in the curation, in the 
creation of these opportunities. And so it really depends on uh, you know, which role we're playing at which moment. We really see it to be critically important to give filmmakers in our city and our region a chance to present their film the way they wanted to, which is in a big screen environment. Nobody spends two years of their life on a project to watch it on their computer at home. They want to see it in a big screen environment. And then I think the other thing that we take pretty seriously is if you're a filmmaker in our city or our region and you want to see how your film looks along the way, uh, we like to be available so you can come in and, and it, you know, without paying a bunch of fees, take a look at your work in progress, hear it, see it, and, uh, you know, potentially make upgrades before you share it with the world. And that's something we've, we've spoken about on the podcast before with, with other exhibitors, the fact that, you know, it's so important, especially now to remain connected with the community to, to build those relationships and to really help out your community where you can. But I feel like there's the perception that anything you do in that vein has to maybe cost a lot of money or take a lot of resources, but there's a resource that cinemas have and that's space just by the nature of the, of the business you have that. And I think it's great that, uh, that the gateways is generous with that because it is really important. Well, thank you. I think it's challenging for filmmakers because understandably, a lot of venues in our industry, they can't give up that screen space that's necessary without an economic return. I have nothing but empathy for that position. Our situation is a little bit unique. So when we have those times when the center is closed, it is nice to allow people to use the screens to take a look at their films. Now, we are recording this podcast ahead of your May 27th official reopening. Uh, of course, that's a that's a big target date after having been uh, closed as as long as you guys have have had to. In reopening, what have been some of the uh, both internal challenges you've tackled? And the second part of that question is how have you reengaged with that audience in your local community? Of course, everyone is coming back to the movies with a different sense of, let's say, is confidence the right word? Let's say comfort level with a comfort level for that return. Could you tell me about those challenges first on an internal level on getting back up and secondly, on an external level, getting the audience back in? You know, I think in some ways the internal challenges are greater than the external ones. We've got a team assembled that's been in cinema operations for a lot of years, but we were all required to put on our learning hats and really understand what are the appropriate levels of sanitation and cleaning and social distancing and health measures uh, that are required to be a responsible exhibitor. So I think we spent the better part of three months really just uh, trying to understand. And as you know, Daniel, the, the standards kept changing along the way in those first few months of the pandemic. So I, I think that's understandable. I don't have any um, animosity towards the CDC or, or our local health organizations. They were trying to learn as well. But once we got our hands around it, it really became about outfitting the venue in a way that's appropriate so that we could reopen responsibly and ensure we kept our patrons safe. We have uh, reopened for two little bursts during the pandemic. The first was we were one of the venues selected to host the Sundance Film Festival. So we opened for those five days in January. And then we uh, did a little test run in late April. We screened all the Best Picture nominees and all the uh, nominated short films over a four-day period, and then we actually um, allowed patrons to stay and watch the broadcast of this year's Academy Awards. 
and we sold every ticket available for both iterations. Now, granted, we were at we were at limited capacity, so you know a sellout doesn't feel like it sold out in 2019. Were you 25, 50? What was your capacity? We were at 30 for both. Our state is lifting all uh, has lifted basically all requirements of us. We're going to open the film center uh, on Memorial Day at 50 percent capacity, and then we're hoping to grow. You know, as as we feel is appropriate. So. But the external part was a little bit easier than the internal part, to, to tell you the truth, because I think there's a lot of pent-up demand for people to get back to the movies. And I guess building on on those experiences that you had in the interim of reopening, uh, I guess, in 2021, both for Sundance and with that uh, Academy Awards run-up, what were some of the, the lessons you took from those experiences? And how did those lessons inform where you guys are right now as you're ramping up preparations to fully reopen? I think the first lesson we all learned and we talked about it as a group afterwards is people cannot wait to see movies on the big screen again. The audience, Daniel, was amazing. We received countless individual donations during both openings. We had patrons bring our staff donuts and food. and uh, There's just such a desire for people to get back to the cinema. The first thing we learned was I don't think we're going to have much of an issue as we uh, reintroduce ourselves to the community. I think the other thing we learned was, I think like a lot of venues that reopened, we limited some of our food and beverage opportunities. We limited some of the amenities that people had become accustomed to, and they want them. Uh, when we when we were we were being very very careful about food and drink for both Sundance and award season weekend, and all of the missing products, people asked for them. Uh, they weren't on our menu boards. They weren't on any of our menus, but the audience knew about them and they want them back. So as we um, you know, reintegrate those, uh, I think audience members are going to be very happy. I mean, that's interesting. I, I think it's something that we've seen from from other exhibitors on a macro level is people really being able to take the time now to see what works in terms of programming, in terms of their menu, in terms of operations. You know, you can really almost reinvent yourself in a way moving forward. We've talked a bit about um, Gateway's kind of unique perspective to programming. I mean, it's it's not, you're not mainstream, you're not indie, you're not art house, you're kind of, you know, and not even, you're not even in the middle of the road. You kind of operate within all these different areas. Obviously, opening in late May, content is still thin on the ground compared to where we would have been in 2019. What's going to be your approach to programming in those early few months? Are, are you experimenting with anything new? Uh, how are you thinking you're going to approach that? You know, it's funny. I feel like we've been in a period of innovation in exhibition for a decade. Things have changed so much since 2010. And, you know, when we got to 2020, it wasn't like streaming was invented, right? Netflix had fully cornered the market five years ago, and then you see these new people coming along. I think it actually has been a time uh, with shortening windows, the changing options for people to watch at home to innovate. And uh, I feel pretty proud of what we've done there. We, uh, as you said, we don't really identify in any of those traditional buckets of, of programming. We really are just focused on what are the best films available from around the world in any given week, month, season. And so as we reopen, we're doing that again. You know, we're, you're going to see some commercial stuff. We're going to play Paramount's Quiet Place Part 2. We're, we're really excited about it. I think John Krasinski is a really uh, exciting filmmaker to watch. And the first film was amazing. 
Um, we're going to screen independent and festival films like Gunda and Port Authority from, um, from those distribution companies, Neon. And we're also doing a little bit of our traditional repertory programming. We're doing a retrospective of the films of Cartoon Saloon from Ireland. <laughs> oh, nice. <laughs> I love those guys. And including the short films. We're doing a Chloe Zhao. We're, I think, one of like a handful of venues that actually played her first film. Songs my brothers taught me, and uh, in, in 2016, I love that movie. And uh, we're showing all her features and all her shorts. And then we're doing Sansa Lamb's 4K restoration because we are 4K cinema, and and uh, it's 30 years. And Anthony Hopkins won his Oscar 30 years ago, and then he won another one this year. So it's a good time, I think, to do that. And then a few other local and festival things that are sprinkled in. It's fascinating to hear this, uh, Chris, because we we've been talking about it for a while in just these misconceptions when you talk about uh, art house cinemas, right? Where even just the term might be alienating uh, to some folks. And maybe even the term could be a, a misnomer of sorts. Because when you're an independent cinema that has ties to the community, you are basically bringing in films through your programming that your community can trust you on. Whether that's, uh, you know, one of those obscure movies from the 1980s that Rebecca found in some sort of VHS stack that we all love and adore to watch at, at midnight, or uh, something a little bit more mainstream, like a new release from a major studio. You mentioned uh, A Quiet Place Part Two. I think that curatorial aspect, forming that bond with the audience is, is a big part of why these independent theaters like yours, like The Gateway, have been able to, to survive and I think thrive from this uh, crisis. I agree. I think trust is an integral part of creating meaning and audiences will be subjective. Sometimes they'll like the thing that you curate and sometimes they won't. But I think they can trust and, and feel like they're part of something uh, when they know the efforts going in to bring them things that are original, innovative, interesting, thought provoking. Those are the types of terms we're looking for. So it's, it's not hard to program A Quiet Place Part 2. I know a lot of traditional art houses would say, oh, that's a sequel genre commercial type film. That's not really how we, how we see it. We think it's thought provoking and interesting. And this is a filmmaker to watch. And that's a good thing to be a part of if you're an audience member. So I have a tremendous amount of respect for traditional art house cinemas. And also I think there's an opportunity to be more innovative, quite frankly, as a sect of our uh, exhibition world. I, I think there's a, um, I think there's really exciting things on the festival circuit, and I'd love to see more of them. Yeah, you know, it's funny. I never get into a conversation about print count with anybody outside of our industry. Nobody I talk to from friends or family say, like, well, that movie's being released in 500 venues. Nobody cares. What they care about is seeing quality films. And so if they, if again, if they trust your curation and A Quiet Place comes out on 3,000 screens, they don't say, why is this place I like showing this? They say... Yeah, maybe there's a reason I should go see this, even if it's not. I don't watch horror films regularly, or I prefer period pieces. Like they still will give it a chance, and 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 so um, you know that that model can be challenging in the studio system because traditionally studio distribution wants you to play all of their films. But I think if you take the same approach that we took with our local arts partners, you know, and trying to build relationships and shared understanding, there's a way through the challenges of that and. And then also we respond with quality grosses. So uh, if, if you can switch the, the thinking from I need to get every film to the films I get into the film center are going to do well, it can be a successful way of doing business. 
I mean, A Quiet Place Part Two. that is definitely a movie I want to see on the big screen. I mean, the first one seeing it in a theater was, that was one of the best just movie theater experiences of everybody being afraid to eat their popcorn too loudly or for a straw to squeak or something like that. That's definitely not good for putting the nachos back on the concession stand. So just, you know, <laughs> some unsolicited advice here, Chris, and any exhibitor listening, nacho sales probably won't do very well. And I'm going to be the counterpoint. I'm going to disagree and say that if there are people who are not buying nachos, I will buy all the nachos that they do not buy. <laughs> Thanks so much for being on the podcast. We're happy to happy to meet you and happy to maybe go to the Gateway one day. But my list of cinemas I want to go to on the year, year plus of recording this podcast is too long. <laughs> we have a nationwide road trip that, that, that we need to hit at some yes. point. What a nice problem to have. You can write a great book. <laughs> And a big thank you to our guest, Chris Hamill, the president of the Gateway Film Center in Columbus, Ohio, for joining us in this week's episode. This episode of the Box Office Podcast was brought to you by Spotlight Cinema Networks and produced by Record Edit Podcast, Box Office Pro, in collaboration with the Box Office Company. Please tune in next week on Thursday when we will go over the latest news and headlines from the movie theater industry. On behalf of Rebecca and myself, thanks again for tuning in.